This message comes from NPR sponsor Jobs Ohio. Ohio's business-friendly climate and people-friendly quality of life make it an ideal environment for new and growing businesses to thrive. Visit ohioisforleaders.com to learn more. Hey, really quick before we start the show, we're launching a regular video conversation every Friday at 12 noon Eastern time with a different founder to talk about creative ways to build resiliency in the midst of this crisis. This week, join me and Susan Griffin Black, co-founder of EO Products. She'll talk about all the hand sanitizer they've been making. You can join the conversation and ask questions by going to facebook.com slash howibuiltthis. And you don't need a Facebook account to watch. Bring your questions for me and Susan this Friday, April 3rd at 12 noon Eastern time, facebook.com slash howibuiltthis. We were out of money for, I don't know, the 10th time and had uh, gone to, you know, family and said, you know, we just need another 5000 or whatever and we can get the doors open. We did that a bunch of times. And so we were at a point where it's like we can't go ask for money again. We've told them this was the last time like five times ago. And I just thought to myself, you know, if we're down to this desperate of uh, a situation, we got no money, uh, we're, you know, we're not going to make it. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, how Ken Grossman went from brewing batches of bitter beer in his closet to building America's third largest craft brewery, Sierra Nevada. So just a few days ago, Ken Grossman and I were supposed to be sitting side by side on stage at the Sidney Goldstein Theater in San Francisco for a live How I Built This show to hear how he built one of the biggest craft beer companies in the country. But instead, that event, like every other event, was canceled. But we didn't want to miss out on getting a chance to hear Ken's story because it is too good and too inspiring to wait until we can all go out again. So we asked Ken to record himself from his home just outside Chico, California. And by the way, that's how it's going to be for a while. Because our staff, our guests, me, probably many of you, we're all at home now and starting to adjust to this very weird new reality. And I'm going to confess something here. I I feel a little bit conflicted about doing a show that celebrates building and creating when so many businesses are in trouble now and so many people are worried. But I also think of this show as a place of hope and possibility. This is going to be a long, challenging journey for all of us. And we're going to need stories of people who can inspire us with the challenges they've overcome and the battles they've waged and the odds they've defeated to build something truly special, like Sierra Nevada. Now, before we even get into Ken's story, we wanted to hear from him about how things are going with managing the crisis so far. And of course, in one way, the company is in better shape than most because lots of people are in need of a beer these days. So in places where they can get it, they are buying it. They're buying a lot of it. And when I spoke to Ken a few days ago, he told me his production facilities are still open, but he has no idea how long that might last. You know, a a lot of the businesses that uh, we depend on to sell our products are severely challenged right now. And, you know, having this kind of financial disruption happen to tens of thousands of small family-owned and run um, bars, restaurants, uh, you know, liquor stores uh, across the nation is going to, you know, have a, a, a huge toll on, you know, the lives of those people and the economies in those communities. So it's, yeah, it's been, um, you know, one of the most difficult and stressful weeks in our existence. Um, I've had a lot of them over 40 years. Um, you know, it's been a lot of sleepless nights. But this is sort of at the pinnacle of, of, you know, things for us to have to work through and and to make decisions about. And yes, over the course of building Sierra Nevada Beer, Ken has had a lot of sleepless nights, starting with trying to build a craft brewing company in his 20s with barely any money 
when people didn't really know what craft beer was. In fact, when Ken introduced his now legendary Sierra Nevada Pale Ale to his friends in 1980, most of them thought it was undrinkable. But today, his company is the third largest craft brewery in the U.S. after Boston Beer Company and Yenling. And Ken and his family own 100% of Sierra Nevada, but making money and becoming rich from beer was far from Ken's ambition. At his core, he is a beer brewer, not a businessman. Totally obsessed with the process, with the hops and the barley and the malt and the strains of yeast. And his interest in brewing and fermentation actually started when he was a kid growing up in LA's San Fernando Valley. We had a a small neighborhood group of boys um, growing up through elementary school. Uh, So I met my neighbor, um, I think it was second grade, and his father was a, even back then, was making home beer and home wine and um, was a uh, sort of a very progressive person for the time. He Hmm. was into cooking and baking and fermenting and, you know, sort of the culinary arts, as well as uh, being a cyclist. So he was into bikes, which later I got into uh, cycling and and touring, and also was a a scientist. He was a a metallurgist and worked for Rocketdyne. And so he um, sort of had all those uh, uh, passions of of life, and and, uh, I guess it really appealed to me. So I was around fermenting beer from probably the the age of um, seven or eight or so um, huh. and seeing things boiling on a stove every weekend when he would brew. And his son and I you know, were best buddies for many, many years. I ended up moving up to uh, Chico when he attended Chico State. What was your friend's uh, – what was your, what was his dad's name? What was his name? This uh, Cal Moeller. Cal, uh, he's okay. since passed away, um, but Calvin Moeller. And um, he was, I say, a very uh, early – adopter of, of the, the science of brewing. Huh. So um, most home brewers back in that day, you know, were using English old sort of crude books on how to make cheap beer, but not necessarily, um, you know, how to make great beer and how to, how to do it at home with sort of a science-based. Yeah. And so um, he approached from a, a pretty scientific side. So here, here's what I'm wondering. You are in high school, and I guess... From, from what I've read, you bought your first home brewing kit uh, around that time, um, which I think a lot a, a lot more high school juniors today would do it, but in, in the early 70s, certainly not, or late 60s, certainly not common. Um, did you did you want to make beer because you just like liked it and want to drink beer? Or like, what was the, what was the, your thinking behind buying a home brew kit? Um, you know, I was young, so I couldn't buy beer. Right. Um, and so I just wanted to experiment with making beer. That was it? Yeah. And, you know, today, if you want to brew beer, you just go on the internet and order the hops that come in pellets and, you know, whatever you need, and then you just do it. Uh, was it Was it a little more complicated in 1969? Uh, it was. So uh, there were actually some um, homebrew supply stores just getting started, and, and you could buy beer and winemaking supplies. Uh, it, at that point, homebrewing was still illegal. But uh, they did, uh, you know, nobody got arrested for, for buying malt or hops. But if you, th- I guess, think back to that era, there was still a bit of a carryover from prohibition brewing. And so you could buy malt extract even at hardware stores. And it was, uh, you know, sold with a crock and uh, a package of yeast and uh, a little block of, of some pretty lousy hops. But there, there were ingredients that were uh, still available, I guess, from the prohibition era. And no good information on how to make great beer at home. It was just, uh, you know, for those people who wanted to, uh, you know, brew a batch of home brew. And how, how, how were your early batches? I mean, were they terrible, drinkable, terrible? No. Okay, yeah. <laughs> like you put them in a closet in your house, yeah, or like I, where did you? Yeah. Well, I had to hide them from hide them from my mother. Um, and uh, I actually made a batch of, of wine first, which was pretty tragic, which was out of Welch's, can of Welch's grape juice and some bacon mm, yeast. A can of Welch's <laughs> <Yeah>. grape juice. <laughs> they don't even make it in cans anymore, okay? Yeah, was, wow. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, th- then I got some malt extract and, and um, you know, bought some yeast in a plastic bucket and, and uh, yeah, started brewing a little bit of... How did you not not? How did you know you weren't like making like you know 
you know, botulinium or anthrax or something. Well, I guess one of the the things about beer making is that uh, things like that don't grow in beer. So, I got you. Okay, fine. Uh, the, good good the, to know. The alcohol, the pH, and the hops are all inhibitory to um, uh, toxins. Not that you can't make bad beer, but um, it, it's pretty uh, impossible to make beer to that's got those kind of toxins. Yeah. All right. So you, um, you're, you know, doing home brewing, and and I guess. When you graduate high school in 1972, um, you decide that uh, college isn't really going to be your thing, that you you, want to kind of just get out of L.A., move up to Northern California, and you go – you end up in Chico, California, a small town in in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada. The the idea was that's where you wanted to be for a while? Yeah. So I I got a job at a bicycle shop, which was a a family-owned business um, with – father and two sons working there in a pretty frictional environment. The dynamic was not great. And after less than a couple of months, I sort of had a change of heart and said, well, maybe I should go to school. And so I applied at the junior college to study chemistry and uh, ended up uh, eventually transferring to Chico State and continued to take Science classes, I met my girlfriend and then later wife um, through a mutual friend about the same time. This and is this is your wife, Katie, that you met. You met her at Butte Community College? Uh, well, I met her. She was going to Chico State, and, um, and I was transferring to Chico State, and um, we connected and been together ever since. All right, Katie will um, factor back into this story later on, and we should just mention here that she, when you met her, and I think to this day, does not drink alcohol. She's a teetotaler. Right? Is that right? Yep. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Important to know. Important point to know. The um, third largest uh, craft brewery in America, um, founder's wife doesn't drink. Okay. <laughs> All right. So you meet Katie, um, 73. You're, gosh, you guys are, you're a baby. You're like 18 years old. Um, it's crazy. I mean, you were so young. Yep. And I guess, I, I guess you, um, you got a job in that area um, around Chico in a town called Oroville managing a bike shop um, for a while. Yeah, I had uh, you know, my uh, after my parents got divorced. Um, you know, I didn't get a lot of support. I think I got a uh, hundred dollars a month uh, go away go away to school, and so I had to keep working. So I kept a part time job as I went to school, and then um, eventually I I got the opportunity to go manage uh, one of the bike shops that the the owner in Chico had uh, recently purchased in the town of Orville. And so the two of us got a dinky little one-room house um, sort of in the foothills of Orville, and I ran that shop for a few years. And our daughter was born, Sierra, and uh, born at that house at at home. We had all of our kids uh, home birth. And then um, I had a neighbor who loved my homebrew and convinced me that I should open up a a homebrew supply store. And this is your neighbor, Ron, and what was his name? Ron DeJesus. Ron to Jesus. Okay, so he's your neighbor. Yeah. And I, I guess you should point this out. You you are like 20, 21, still home brewing. Yep. Presumably you've gotten better over the five years, six years that you've been doing it. Oh, yeah. And you uh, – because most people probably in 1976, 75 are drinking like uh, mass-produced beer, right, in America. They're, 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 right? It's just like the big – Budweiser, right? Is that what most people drank? Yeah, it was pretty much the uh, approaching the low point of the U.S. brewing industry. Um, the the breweries that had survived prohibition, the, you know, the family-owned regional breweries were in very difficult uh, place with trying to compete with the national brands, and so the the beer industry was consolidating very very rapidly through the. Well, really, since Prohibition, but 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, hundreds and hundreds of breweries went out of business. And it got down to right about the, the year we started, 1980, for the brewing, for the brewery, got down to the low point of 43 independent breweries. In the U.S. In America. It's amazing. Yeah, the whole U.S., yeah. And that included the biggest and the, the uh, small amount of small brewers that hung on there. So, but going back to, to this time in like the mid 70s, right? Ron, like when Ron. To Jesus, when you, your neighbor, like when you met him, he would have before he met you, he would have just normally been drinking like Budweiser, probably, or one of those. Beers. Um, probably not even uh, anything that expensive. So um, you know, again, we were young and didn't have a lot of money, so we were probably drinking, you know, Buckhorn and the um, you know, Spring Beer out of Meyer Brewing Company mm-hmm. in in Los Angeles. I mean, there were a handful of, of 
cheaper beers that were probably what our age group would be drinking. And these were not uh, high-quality beers. It's just like... Um, they were certainly not interesting beers. Um, I got you. Okay. Got yeah. you. All right. I mean, the All U.S. Right. brewing industry has had a history of making, you know, generally good quality products, but they're not necessarily products that uh, have a lot of character. So he, he meets you, and you're brewing this beer. And what, what was the style of the beer you were brewing at home? Um, I, I was probably fairly advanced by that time. So I was doing a little bit of roasting my own grains in the oven and um, sprouting my own wheat to make wheat beer. And, and so I, I was pretty experimental. And at that point, my wife and I were sort of back to the landers. We had uh, a small herd of goats. Um, we had chickens. Uh, you know, we were making cheese and bacon bread. And so uh, making beer sort of fit into our lifestyle. So your neighbor, Ron, says, hey, you're, you're, this beer's great. You should uh, sell it. Um, and I guess that's sort of what, from, from what I understand, it sort of inspired you to open up a, like a home brewing business, like a little shop where you could sit, like supply people, right? Is that is it right? Yep. So we found a little teeny building in an in what had been an old downtown hotel in Chico that was being converted into a bunch of little shops and studios. And so for, I don't think it was about $60 a month rent, we could uh, rent this wow. little little room. And um, it was just a bare shell, which we um, ended up you know, doing all the woodwork and finishing up and turning into just a little shop. You know, next to us was a potter and a a used record shop and, you know, jewelry store and a little teeny antique store. Oh, and you know, so there were just a bunch of little artisan crafts and uh, shops up there. It sounds so idyllic, especially from, from 2020. Well, we couldn't we couldn't uh, pay the rent some months, and so we worked out a deal where we'd be the janitors for the for the uh, place in lieu of rent. So uh, Katie and I did that for a you while. Couldn't, you couldn't sell 60 bucks worth of uh, homebrew supplies uh, it a was, month? Uh, you know, we could sell sixty dollars worth. That would be a really big day. But out of the sixty dollars, you made maybe twenty, and then you had to pay the lights and sure, uh, you know, a little bit of money to take home. And so, no, we didn't make a lot of money selling homebrew supplies. And and what were homebrew supplies in nineteen seventy six? So it was, you know, malt syrup primarily. Um, although we were pushing and, and teaching classes and trying to get people to actually brew from grain, which is the, back to the beginning of the process. You buy malted barley, which is uh, barley that's been soaked, sprouted, and germinated and dried at a maltster. And that creates the base for then converting the, the malt into sugars. And then sugars are boiled with hops. And, and so we stocked hydrometers and um, hmm. crocks and tubs to brew in and glass carboys. So which you could brew, which you could brew the, the beer in, I got right, you. ferment the beer in. Um, here's, here's what I'm wondering, Ken, right? In, in, the, in the late 70s, right, this is still a subculture. Like, like craft brewing today, right? Like half, of, half, of, half the staff of How I Built This goes to craft brewing festivals, right? Like it's just a very mainstream thing. Like every bar mm -hmm. worth its salt has craft brews on tap or in bottles, right? In 1976... This is a, this is a subculture of people like 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 Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. So I'm just trying to understand something because obviously you've proved everybody right. But when people said to you when they're like, "Ken, this is just like gross. I don't. What what do you like about this? What why do you like the taste of this? What would you say? Well, um, yeah, there was no knowledge of craft beer and homebrew was yeah. um, you know not necessarily viewed in a positive light and and you know based sort of on what most people had tasted if they ever tasted homebrew. It was uh, highly alcoholic, uh, acidic, and it looked murky, and um, which today is in again. But back then, um, you know, beer was supposed to be clear. And so most people were pretty uh, put off by it. But I made some pretty decent beer, and, and uh, I started to have a, a following of friends who, you know, wanted my homebrew. Well, what did you like about it? Like, here's, that's what I want to know. Like, when I talk to somebody who is really into wine, right, there's just a, the complexity and the different flavors and the, it's almost like, um, I don't know, it's like, it's like somebody who's, who's really interested in, in like, mysteries. They're, they're, they love the nuances. Is that what beer 
was like for you, like making it? Just, yeah, I mean, I part know. of it, I think, was the allure of the alchemy. Um, hmm. You know, just the ability to take things such as disparate as, you know, a, a, a bitter leaf off of a plant, the, the hop, and um, the sweet malt from barley and um, yeast, and sort of see that magic happen of, of converting those basic raw ingredients into something that has lots of nuances and character and flavor and can bring joy and a social setting. And, yeah. Um, so I think the, the process was as intriguing as the, the finished product. Because in the late 70s, it would have been an unusual taste, right? Like our taste buds were not attuned to you know, multi-hoppy beer. No, they weren't. And, um, you know, I don't know what percentage of my friends actually liked the beer or the ones who told me they did, (laughs) but um, um, I'm sure it was off-putting for uh, the majority of people who were used to drinking, you know, regular Mm. lager beer. Um, And it was even that way when we first started the brewery. You'd go to a tasting and 90% 90% of the people were like, wow, this is way too bitter. I, I, I can't drink this or I don't like this. Yeah. And, uh, but then you'd find somebody who's like, God, I just love that bitter character. And so the, you know, the human palate uh, certainly interprets those flavors differently. And I think as uh, craft brewing and as beer culture evolved, I think people became m- much more appreciative of, of beer styles that yeah. really have a lot of character. All right, so you've got this little storefront. Um, at what point did you think, you know, maybe I should actually make beer and sell beer? Was there like a conversation? Did somebody encourage you to do this? Was there uh, – because you've got the store and presumably like, you know, you could make that your career. Like we could be talking today and you could have started the, you know, a chain of uh, home brew supply shops, right? But But at what point did you think maybe I should just sell beer? Well, I uh, actually I went down to a uh, conference in Oakland, um, and on that uh, trip, we arranged a tour to go see Fritz Maytag at the uh, Anchor Brewery. Fritz Maytag was the uh, guy who founded Anchor Brewery, which makes Anchor Steam. Uh, right? Well, he didn't found it, so he he uh, purchased it. So it's an old brewery. He purchased right. it. Yeah, it's an old old brewery, but he it, kind of he kind of revamped it, made it into what? Yeah, revamped yeah. it. Right. So he helped. Um, sort of create what is now the craft brewing industry by realizing that if you're going to be uh, a small boutique brewery in this country, you better, one, produce a unique product, and, and two, figure out how to charge enough of a price that you can survive as a small producer. So you meet him You meet him at this yep. at this conference? Well, well, I didn't meet him at the conference. I actually went over to his brewery, and he gave me a tour, uh, me and a small group of folks, and... Uh, Pretty primitive at that time. Uh, it was um, a lot, of, no automation, and not a lot of sophistication in the brewery. And I was fairly sophisticated as a home brewer, um, uh, culturing some of our own yeasts and, and doing things like that, and uh, making 20-gallon batches. And I think at that point he was making maybe 50-barrel batches. And that sort of inspired me a, a bit that, you know, maybe you could do it as a, as a startup, as a home brewer. Huh. And then I went and visited New Albion, which was really the... the In Sonoma, right? Yeah, Jack McAuliffe, who yeah. started that brewery. And, and he had um, sort of gone pretty much homebrew and opened up a commercial brewery with uh, all home-built, primitive, basic equipment, uh, very small batches, uh, about 45 gallons hmm. per batch. And after seeing his operation, realized that, uh, you know, it was feasible to do as an independent um, glorified homebrew setup and sell beer commercially. So you were actively kind of exploring the possibility of doing this. When you contacted, you know, Fritz or when you went to go visit New Albion, did you say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this myself. Can I can I come talk to you? Or did you just say, oh, I, I, I've got this shop where we sell equipment. Can I come check you out like what was your what was your approach well uh, you know thinking back then with Fritz I, I don't think I, I yet had the notion that I wanted to try to to go commercial um, when I went and visited Jack it was starting to uh, gel that um, yeah this is maybe something I can do and I got together with one of my homebrew shop 
customers, uh, Paul Camuzzi, and uh, he was buying homebrew supplies for me and from from other uh, homebrew suppliers. And, and you know, we decided uh, let's see if we can raise some money and open a brewery. Wow. So that so basically, you thought, all right, this guy seems to know what he's doing, and you knew what you were doing, and because you were like. I don't know, 23, 20, 22, 23 at this point. Yep. And I read that you, you you guys sat down, you wrote a business plan, like a pretty detailed business plan. Um, and you figured it, you figured that you need $50,000 to actually start a, 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 a beer company, a brewing company. Uh, so you went to the banks, right? And and well, what did the banks say when you showed them the plan? Well, I mean, I guess in hindsight, it was not a pretty detailed business plan. After seeing, you know, more formal business plans, it was what we thought was a good business plan. So we had, uh, you know, printed off articles of of sort of the trends that were happening in beer. You know, one on Fritz Maytag and one on sort of what was happening in the import space, starting to grow in the U.S. and uh, the demise of sort of much choice in the beer industry we thought would give us a, a small slice of, of the pie that was um, rapidly being cut up. So I think we wrote several drafts of that business plan. The original one I think called for $50,000 total and uh, went to banks and we, we actually started. So we started to pool our money. I started to buy equipment. I started to build equipment. I enrolled back at the junior college at Butte in welding classes, machine shops, um, anything that, that gave me access to use forklifts and drill presses and welders and everything else I needed to, to weld all the pieces together. Took some business classes, took um, refrigeration repair. I took a couple semesters of that. Started just to build skills and started to build the equipment as we were trying to raise money. Um, the banks pretty much said uh, there's no way. And if you were uh, a banker yeah. of uh, of any sort back then and you researched the U.S. brewing industry, you would have seen that it was pretty rapidly um, declining, at least small brewers were. You would not have given a loan, A, not only to a, a craft brewing company, but to like two guys in their 20s trying to start a craft brewing company. Yeah, who had no experience, yeah, right. no experience in the brewing industry. You know, we'd never worked a day for a brewery or a beer distributor or anything like that. So, yeah, not a very um, likely uh, investment to make from a banker standpoint. Got it. So you need 50K. How much money did you and Paul have between you? So we had assembled $17,000. and uh, Between the two? Between the two of us. I had... Uh, Sold my homebrew shop for uh, $3,000 or $4,000, um, and I had some savings, and my grandfather had given me some bonds to go to college. I cashed all those in, and uh, Paul had um, somewhere sort of all his savings. Uh, not a lot of money. So how did you get the rest of the 50K? The, you still need like 35K. Well, How'd so we it? went to all of our family and eventually some friends and uh, got uh, you know $5,000, $10,000 investments and thought we had enough money several times but kept running out of money. Um, and we were you know so low on cash that we did not hire pretty much anything out. So... We did the framing, the sheetrocking. I did the plumbing. I did all the electrical. I did all the refrigeration. Yeah, where was the location? Where was the, where was the site that you found? We found a little metal warehouse building, 3,000 square feet, empty shell. Uh, had been a like a sheetrock warehouse uh, in, in Chico. In Chico, right. And so we came in, and in order to keep sanitation and quality in a brewing uh, world you need floor drains and you need separation between the, the brewing rooms and the fermenting yeah. rooms and uh, so we went in and uh, unbeknownst to the uh, landlord we jackhammered uh, through the floor saw, you know, sawed and put in drainage and then poured slope floors on top of that and um, but we did all that ourselves and it took a really long time you know I was taking my 57 Chevy and driving up and down the Sacramento Valley, uh, up into Oregon and Washington, and um, looking for old pumps and pipe and tanks and, and things that we could scrounge for basically pennies on the dollar to use to build uh, the brewing equipment out of. 
and I, I got pretty lucky. I mean, the, the dairying industry was also sort of at a, a tough point where these little family dairies were closing and there were, were hundreds of them scattered throughout that would have one milk tank and it was sort of a, a, a side job. I'd get a lead that, you know, go down this road and you might find uh, so-and-so's old dairy. So knock on the door and ask them if they had any old equipment and they'd take me up the barn and there'd be you know, a dusty uh, pile of pipe and a, maybe a pump and occasionally I'd get a tank and, um, you know, 300 bucks or 500 bucks, I'd buy it all from them. All right, this is an important point and I want I want you to, to, to explain this to me because I, I, I think that people are going to be confused and think that, I hope they're not, that you just kind of figure it out as you went along, which is par- partially true, but you actually did a lot of research. Like you actually went to UC Davis, which is a huge, it has a huge agricultural department. And you uh, like met with a professor there and, and went to the research library to learn about brewing. What did, what, like, what did you do there? Um, so yeah, we were fortunate. So UC Davis had one of the only university brewing uh, schools in the nation. Huh. Uh, it was started, you know, they have a, a big wine program there as well, but they, they started right. a, a beer program uh, quite a few years back. And um, we availed ourselves of, of both their library and, and I would go down with stacks of quarters. I would either read there or photocopy everything um, I could get my hands on. Like scientific journals, like like scientific academic yes, papers? Uh, and I've still got boxes of them today. And... Uh, and there were a, a couple really important scientific brewing texts available, and they weren't, you know, they weren't home brewing texts. They were, if you're a brewing yeah. scientist, uh, you know, four or five hundred page uh, tomes on, um, you know, the, the every aspect of, of being a professional brewer. And I read them cover to cover, and so I was a fairly um, learned brewer from at least the literature side mm. uh, as we went into into brewing uh, commercially. And it also sounds like in the, these, this two-year period, because it was like really two years, right, 78 yep. to, to 80 when you were kind of ramp, working on ramping up Sierra Nevada and, and really going public, I mean selling it public to the public, um, that the other guys, like the other folks in, in the craft brewing industry were really collegial, like Fritz Maytag at Anchor Steam and like, like you went to these f- folks for advice, and they were really—they were like, "Yeah." I mean, I'm just—I'm just wondering, were they just good people? Like, because you were—you know—in your early 20s. I mean, they could have just—I don't know—looked at you and thought, "Who is this kid? Like, why are we taking this guy seriously?" But what what explains? Because they were right. There was a lot of like, oh, yeah. you go and ask them for tips and stuff, right? Yeah, and I, and I think that um, you know, Fritz was probably the the first one I leaned on a, a bit, and. And he had um, had the same experience. So when he was starting out, when he bought Anchor, he didn't know anything about brewing or the brewing industry. And he would go and visit other brewers, and, and he was shocked at how open and supportive they were. But uh, we did um, have a, a really, I guess, open relationship with pretty much anybody in the brewing industry. Um, I joined the Master Brewers Association, which was really, you know, the big brewers technical group uh, very early on. But you could call up uh, a technical person at another brewery, whether it was Coors or Anheuser-Busch and, or Miller, and, and ask huh. a question, and they would talk to wow. you. Wow. And, um, Wow, uh, you know the the commercial guys, the guys who were selling beer on the streets, they they didn't have the same relationship. But the the technical side of brewing, um, uh, brewers tend to stick together and uh, to help solve problems. So in this two year period when you're ramping up, right? What does Katie think? I mean, you've got a daughter, a baby girl at home. I mean, was was she like? I don't know. Was Katie ever ever like? Hey, Ken, like this is nuts. What are you yeah. doing? It was tough, and um, we made a lot of sacrifices. She made a lot of sacrifices. Um, you know, we didn't have any money, and I was working all the time. So um, if I wasn't studying, uh, if I wasn't welding, if I wasn't working, because I was still having to work another job, um, if I wasn't building at the brewery, I mean, I was. it was seven days a week, um, 12 hours a day. And I had the... I guess the early opportunity, right when I was uh, committing to build the brewery, to actually buy one of the bike shops I had worked in. Uh, the owner was uh, getting out of the business, and, and um, he would have sold it to me probably preferentially if I said I wanted to do that. And there was a point where I thought, 
you know, I could buy this bike shop and probably make a decent living. Um, and it's a sure thing. But I was, you know, in my mind thinking, you know, am I going to then question, uh, could I have ever really pulled off building a brewery and being a brewer for my livelihood instead of a bike mechanic? And so we had a, a thoughtful discussion, uh, Katie and I, about what should we do or what should I do? And came down to, you know, I think you got to follow your your passion and, um, you know, see if, if that's what you want to do, you should do that. I, I read that you... Um and you, you have, you've written a book about about these early days, and you wrote that um, in, by September 1980, you're running out of money quickly. And you, this is a quote from your book. Uh, psychologically, we, you and Paul, were starting to break down. What, what, what do you mean? What, just from the stress of, of watching, you know, nothing happened, the money going out? Like, what was the breakdown? Well, there were a few um, points of desperation, and, and we were getting there. Um, we were out of money for, I don't know, the... Tenth time, and and had uh, gone to you know family and said you know we just need another five thousand or two thousand or whatever and we can get the doors open. We did that a bunch of times, and so we were at a point where it's like we can't go ask for money again. We've you know we've told them this was the last time like five times ago. You know we'd spent everything we had, and I said we'd borrowed enough that you know not going forward would have certainly been a big failure. So it was like no, we got to do this and. Uh, we just, uh, you know, didn't have everything together to start brewing, and uh, I needed a cold box uh, refrigeration system for where we were going to age the beer. And I remember a friend of mine said, "Well, I know of this uh, backyard butcher shop that the county shut down mm. that's got an old refrigeration system with a coil on it, and uh, you can probably have it or get it for a few bucks." So went over there and, and um, in his backyard he would butcher chickens and hogs and things for for neighbors illegally and, and um, uh, there was a little cold box there so I took it to the brewery and you know, started to clean it up and it was covered in blood and feathers and uh, it was just completely corroded and I'm sitting there cleaning it up and uh, I just thought to myself you know if we're down to this desperate of uh, situation we got no money making um, making beer still a few weeks off um, we're not gonna make it when we come back how Ken finally brewed his first batch of beer to sell to the public and how people began to buy it not by the keg not even by the six-pack but bottle by bottle by bottle stay with us I'm Guy Raz and you're listening to how I built this NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M, helping to protect those on the front lines every day. As the father of a healthcare worker, 3M employee Chris understood how important it was for his daughter and nurses like her to be protected during COVID-19. At the height of the pandemic, he worked hard to direct high-performing personal protective equipment to hospitals and hotspots. Hear his story at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Checker. Want to diversify your workforce and change the future? Studies show that employment is the number one factor in reducing recidivism. Fair Chance Hiring provides a path to employment for 70 to 100 million qualified Americans. Choose Checker for fast, accurate, and fair background checks that give people a fair shot at their futures. Learn more at checker.com slash NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the American Jewish World Service, working together for more than 30 years to build a more just and equitable world. Learn more at ajws.org. Thanks also to BetterHelp, online counseling by licensed professional counselors specializing in isolation, depression, stress, and anxiety. Visit betterhelp.com built to learn more and get 10% off your first month. 
When the economy goes haywire, Planet Money is here to make sense of it for you. From the big bailouts to the tiny details of a vaccine stockpile. One of the first thing we did was secure a large number of chicken flocks. So these are like hard-working government chickens? They are hard-working government chickens. That's NPR's Planet Money podcast. Listen now. Hey, welcome back to How I Built This. I'm Guy Raz. So it's the fall of 1980, and Ken and his partner Paul Camuzzi have basically jerry-rigged an entire brewery out of hand-me-down dairy tanks and random pieces of scrap metal. They're almost out of money, and they're totally stressed out, but they're also almost ready to make beer. Except Ken needs one more thing. I needed a hop strainer, and I'd been trying to find a suitable used tank or container to use for a hop strainer and wasn't able to find one and didn't really have the money for it. And I had a few pieces of scrap metal, stainless steel left over from something else, and I said, okay, this is it. I'm going to go weld up a hop strainer, and we're going to brew beer tomorrow. And um, so sort of the last piece or two, we just sort of made do and um, made uh, five barrels of stout uh, November 15th, 1980, and learned a few things, but it went okay. It took, I don't know, 12 or 13 hours to make 150 gallons of beer and more hours to clean up than that, but at least we were sort of on our way. And then uh, started brewing pale ale the two days later and started to realize we were not able to make batch after batch taste the same. They weren't bad. They were just... Hmm. Um, Pale Ale 3 was actually pretty good, I remember, and we were bottling a little bit and sharing it with friends, saying, I think we're there, or we're really close. And we brewed Pale Ale 4, and it wasn't quite right, and then we brewed Pale Ale 5, and it was different, and um, we ended up dumping all those beers. Um, Wait, can I just can I just pause on that? Because this is, this is your most famous beer, right? Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is, yep. and I think it still accounts for like most of your sales today, the majority of your sales, um, over half. This beer is a is is got four things in it: water, uh, malt, yeast, and hops. Right? Is that is it? I got okay. I got the recipe right. Yep. Um, for people who don't know anything about beer, right? Um, like, what was it about? I mean, you're you're sitting, you're going through a bunch of batches of that beer, right? What were you looking for? Because you said the first wasn't quite right, the second wasn't right, the third was okay, the fourth wasn't right. Like, what what were the criteria you were using in your mind? Um, well, one, we, we knew we needed to be consistent, and I think that's probably a, as big of an issue as, as anything. It's just that mm. they didn't taste the same. Um, so some of them fermented faster, some fermented slower, so they had different nuances in the aromas and character. So I, I think our, our concern was we couldn't make the same beer batch after batch, and we better figure that out first. So. Here's here's now another question about this, right? Which is, if you go to Germany, right? They've got this law where all German beers or certain kind of German beer has to have water, m- malt. Yeah, uh, water, malt, hops, ye- and yeast. Right. So it's the yeah, German purity law. The German um, purity law, right? But when you go to Germany and you drink a, a lot of their beers, like a Kolsch or um, or like a, a certain brands like Warsteiner or Bitburg, they're lagers, right? They're very clean, clear, light lagers. Um, you're using the same four ingredients, but you were introducing, or you were, you were bringing into your beer a like the hoppiness was like that was going to be really intense. Like this was for some people, the flavor was even going to be slightly or not more, more than slightly bitter, right? Like mm-hmm. was that was that something that and most beers at the time just weren't focusing on the hoppiness of the beer? Well, uh, if you go actually back to Germany in, in that era, there were places in Germany making really hoppy beers. And what, and what is it about the hops that makes the beer taste more bitter? Well, um, hops are added to, to beer for their alpha acids, which are the, the bittering component or a major part of the bittering component of the hop. And that's... Um, uh, something that is varietal specific as far as those levels. So hops are a spice essentially in the brewing process. Right. You know, I guess you could think of them like chilies. And they're basically leaves. They're like miniature leaves that grow like look like a berry. Well, it's actually yeah, leaves, it's, right? it's like a flower. Um, flower. Okay, I got you. And the alpha acids, the bitter acids, and those aromatic oils are geographic in some cases. So uh, a variety that's grown in 
Oregon may be different, uh, same variety than it, it tastes in Yakima or Idaho, uh, or gotcha. if it's growing in France or in Australia. Uh, you know, in this country, there wasn't really a aroma signature from the, the U.S. hop industry uh, until us and a few other brewers started to focus on a, a new variety called Cascade, uh, which was bred up in uh, at Oregon State. And huh. it was piney and citrusy and, and had some real distinct character, but it wasn't uh, what the, the German brewers who worked at big breweries were used to using, and so it really didn't find favor in the U.S. brewing industry until uh, sort of our wave of craft brewers started to punch things up with uh, huh. aromas and characters that were way different than what beer had been before, at least beer brewed in America. All right, so you um, you get this beer down, this pale ale beer down, and uh, how do you how do people respond to it when they try it? I mean, obviously, I'm sure there are some people who, who who sort of were sophisticated, and but were there other people who were not just you know super sophisticated and they tried it and they thought, oh, yeah, most oh, like like you're the, yeah yeah most, oh really most people most people didn't like it no no. Again, if you're used to drinking an American light lager style and you're hit with a very aromatically hoppy and bitter balance in your beer, and, and you know, just for a, a, a reference point, and, and the numbers are sort of going to be meaningless, but just as a relative number, today domestic lager beers might be in the eight to 10 bitterness units. Um, and there's there's outliers to that, but that's yeah. about the range. Our pale ale, when it came out and still is, uh, is at 38 bitterness units. And so, um, you know, if you again equate that to sort of chilies, it's, you know, it, it's quite a bit more than what people are used to drinking. Um, and again, we were trying to feature very aromatic hops, you know, pine and citrus and all these other uh, nuanced aromas that come out of hops. Mm. So, you know, we were producing a beer that was polarizing, to say the least. Yeah. I mean, but it's interesting because we've had founders on the show who say, who've said uh, in the past, you know, if if the thing you're producing is polarizing, then it might just you might just be on on the right track, right? <laughs> Which yeah. obviously you were, but um, I mean, this was going to be the the backbone of your business, and and uh, lots of people or most people were saying, "Ooh, this is a this is a I don't know about this." So how did you con- how did you start to sell it? Like, what was your first? What, what, I mean, did you go to bars? Did you were you going to sell it on tap? Were you going to sell it to shops? What? How are you going to get people to buy it? Well, um, you know, we looked at. Um, you know how we were going to go to market. We we couldn't afford six pack carriers. That was sort of out of our budget. So we had individual bottles, and we started out in all returnable bar bottles that we would charge a nickel deposit on. So we we would buy used bar bottles at eighty five cents a, a case from uh, bigger breweries who had surplus bottles they were willing to sell us, and we would charge a, a nickel a bottle, so a dollar twenty a case when we sold the beer, and we give them a nickel back when we got the empties back. And we pretty much loaded our van up. We, we bought an old van from a, a, a friend of ours, um, took the seats out, and that was our delivery van. Um, I hired uh, an old high school friend of mine, uh, Steve Harrison, to be our, our first employee and salesperson. Um, he would help bottle during bottle days, and he would drive the van around and try to sell beer. If you go back to you know that era, there wasn't a lot of uh, options for draft beer. So if you went into a normal bar, they might have one or two or you know, maybe three taps, but it was normal just for one or two beer taps. So we actually did not go into the, the bar trade at all initially. Um, we, at least not on draft, we, we just said there's not enough money there, not enough tabs. Right. Um, hmm. So we priced ourselves at the, the highest price we thought we could get by with. We did no market research. We just What was the price? 85 cents a bottle. And that was at that time in 1980, 81, that was expensive for a bottle of beer? That was what the, you know, the higher priced imports were selling for on the shelf. So we thought, well, uh, we're going to price ourselves and stylistically try to be like a unique import beer. And and you were just going, like, how were you distributing this? I mean, it was presumably it was just you guys, right? Uh, yeah, our van. 
We would just drive around and go knock on bars, restaurants, supermarkets, wherever, and uh, try to see if we could convince them to buy a, uh, a case of 24 loose bottles. And were most of them dismissive, or were most of them, like, interested, or what was the reception you got? In our hometown, we, we got at least uh, quite a few of the bars and restaurants to take a case. So in the hometown, and since we you know, had been in the press a couple of times about this little brewery opening up, um, we were able to uh, get some placements. Um, once we started leaving Chico and went to the Bay Area, it was a real slog. Um, you know, there was no craft knowledge, you know, no internet. You know, there was not a, a way for a, a business that didn't have any money to get much uh, notoriety. We couldn't pay for any of it. Um, we were, you know, really fortunate that there were a few writers who were intrigued by the whole startup of this hmm. craft beer scene and, and started to write stories. Including in the, what, in like the San Francisco Chronicle or? Yeah, San Francisco Examiner. Actually, there was a, I think it was a five-page color spread on uh, the, the brewery, the little brewery in Chico. Um, oh, wow. And uh, that was just an amazing shot in the arm. We got this you know, huge amount of publicity. And we were also very fortunate there was a, a beer buyer for one of the large grocery store chains whose daughter was going to Chico State. And so he would come up to visit his daughter and he was into beer, and so he'd come by the brewery and have a, a beer with us. And so he started to run um, some promotions for us. Wow. Uh, without wow. us really being involved or knowing about it, all of a sudden we'd get a bunch of calls from distributors with, um, you know, wanting beer. And um, and then the Grateful Dead, actually, um, they, they somehow early on got hooked into the beer. And, and so when the dead would travel around, um, we'd have to watch where their concert series were. And, and we'd get all these orders for beer ahead of um, them hitting town. And um, how were you able to, to produce enough beer? I mean, you uh, right, if the demand was, was starting to go up. Well, well, so my business plan called for us to brew, hopefully, 2,500 barrels of beer a year. I, I was able to brew... 12 10-barrel batches a month, so three brews a week. Um, that was sort of our, our phase one, and we had planned in an expansion to go up to 3,500 barrels a year, doing some, um, some more mo- modifications of the facility. So we did that pretty quick, and our business model was so flawed that um, we couldn't survive at 3,500 barrels a, a beer a year. It just was, was not enough. You know, things cost more, and there was always some financial need we hadn't planned on. So we pretty quickly realized we better, we got to grow. We got to figure this out quick. And so I went uh, over to Germany, um, I think in end of 82, 83, and I bought a defunct uh, brewery over there. It was just a, it was just like a, a shutdown brewery. You just bought all their equipment out? Um, I bought their whole brewing side. So didn't get their packaging equipment, but bought the right. brew house and paid basically the scrap value, uh, $15,000 to buy all the equipment. And we uh, spent more more than that crating it and shipping it back to the U.S. I, I went over with a high school buddy and we spent three weeks in Europe um, helping dismantle the equipment and uh, getting it out of the building and, and brought another business plan and could not borrow money still. So we uh, you know, had this equipment sitting there in a crate um, but we needed what we thought at the time was like a million dollars to uh, sort of move into a new facility and to equip it with uh, enough equipment to, to use that bigger brew house. So it actually sat there for years, I think uh, almost four years wow. in a crate. Wow. And we just uh, came up with every way possible to expand production. So we knocked out walls. We took over other metal buildings in the little street and put tanks outside and uh, brewed around the clock. So we eventually got the production up to um, about uh, 12,000 barrels or a little less than 12,000 barrels uh, in 87. Were you just – between 1980 and 1987 or maybe even longer, were you just – were you working like – because you were the beer brewer, right? You were actually the guy making the beer. Yeah, I did all the brewing and all the packaging um, in the beginning. So I would brew three days a week and I'd package two days a week. And then as we got a, a, a little bit bigger, um, I was starting to focus on how to grow uh, on expansion. So I was uh, 
building tanks and welding pipes and adding things. And so I started to hire some brewers um, and then hired, um, you know, somebody to run packaging so I could free myself up to, to do all the, the expansion side of the business. Was, was your day like, I don't know, what time did your day start in the early days? Oh, boy. Um, four to five. Wow. You had to start brewing that early? Yeah. Start in the dark. Cause, and particularly as we grew, we needed to brew as much as we could. And so it was almost 24 hours a day. I mean, we, we typically have operated 24 hours a day. So um, something that we haven't discussed yet, but um, there was, I guess, probably fair, from a fairly early point, um, quite a bit of tension between you and Paul Camusi, your co-founder. Um, fr- from what I understand, like there was tension over work uh, work commitment like he you felt like you were working 10 15 hours a day and and that he was working fewer hours and um, and that tension seemed to kind of continue um, what what happened between the two of you well that the, there was certainly what, what I felt and I think everybody around us who were involved in the business you know saw as well that you know there was a disproportionate amount of effort being put in. I mean, my days were always longer than his and, and uh, more physical. And so at one point it became uh, a critical issue between us and, and we did end up adjusting compensation. So I was making um, I don't know, double what he was making. And so we, we yeah. did try to address it. But, you know, as the business grew and the value of the business grew and, and um, you know, we were 50-50 partners, it, it started to feel that I was doing a disproportionate amount of building value in the company. And so we started to have discussions um, in the late 80s of uh, this is something I'm I'm not going to continue doing for much longer and we've got to come to some resolution. So um, as we moved into the new uh, brewery um, in the late 80s and into the 90s, it became, you know, a a bigger and bigger sticking point. And... um, were you were the two of you? Uh, uh, was it uncomfortable at times? I mean, it, I imagine it, it was. Yeah, it grew uncomfortable at times. Yeah, I mean, early on, he was he lived in our house. I mean, he was a um, just to save money. He was a roommate. Um, yeah. But then, as uh, yeah, as things went on, it became a bigger and bigger friction friction point. You would go on to buy him out um, in the late nineties, and I think um, you had to. You to really take a bunch of loans to do that because by that point the business was worth a lot of money. Yep. So how did you do it? Well, um, initially I didn't think that was a possibility. You know, I didn't have any money, and the thought of of uh, going into debt at the kind of dollars that we were starting to have the company valued at was just. Uh, it wasn't in my thought process that you know I could figure out how to do it. What were they valuing the company at that time in, in the in the nineties, late nineties? The valuations across the industry were sort of all over the place, but also were going up uh, pretty steadily. Um, and you know, thirty million, forty million, fifty million. And this, uh, you know, me buying Paul out took years um, to work through with attorneys, and so. You know, as that time went on, we were still growing, and so the value of the business was growing. And, you know, I had a really tough decision. Do I, you know, hamper the growth of the company in order to not have the number get bigger and bigger so I could potentially afford it, or do I do what I think is right for the business and and continue to grow it? Hmm. So, yeah, it was a really challenging time for me personally. Um, You know, we were uh, in a market that was sort of exploding from um, some, of, some of our competitors were making big moves and uh, we were becoming hampered by our facility. Um, Why? What, what, what was going on with that? Well, the brewery that I had designed in, in 87 and 88 when we moved into the new facility, I had designed for 60,000 barrels worth of annual capacity. You know, if I think back to, to that time, you know, that was more than Anchor was producing, and, and they were the oldest of the sort of winners in the craft world. And we had uh, produced a little over, I don't know, 11 or 
thousand or twelve thousand barrels or so in eighty seven, and so I thought, you know, geez, if we could grow four times that big or or more than that, that would be an amazing achievement. And so sixty thousand barrels seemed like a, a pretty lofty yeah. um, projection, and so. Our first year in the new facility, I think we brewed about 20,000 barrels, or next year 30,000 barrels, or next year 45,000 barrels, and the next year we were out of capacity again. And so we started doing whatever we could. We put tanks outside. We added brewing equipment. We started brewing multiple times around the clock, and I think we got to a point... um, I think it was 1997, we brewed 363 days, 24 hours a day. We took Christmas and Thanksgiving off, I think, and just other than that, just kept going. And, wow. And that's right when I was trying to figure out how to buy Paul out. So uh, very, very challenging period. Did you have to go into de- into serious debt to make that happen? Well, so we explored, uh, again, I didn't think it was possible for me to buy him out. And so um, we met with every group you could imagine, uh, you know, venture, lots of venture funds. And um, I I had lots of dinners with groups that, uh, you know, told me they were going to be my best friend. And um, but I got caution from other people saying, watch out, Uh, you know, things go south, you'll be in trouble. And so I started having real angst about, okay, so I'm going to have a, an investment group in as my partner. They're going to have some really um, tough metrics that I've got to meet to give them the returns they're looking for. And then they're going to want out in five or seven years. And yep. I'm going to be right back where I am today, but in a worse place. So I you know, really got cold feet about doing a, a venture deal. So what you decide to do instead? So I had a, a really great attorney uh, in San Francisco, and uh, we started looking at um, alternatives, and he brought in a, a friend of his who was very experienced with working with banks and structuring deals, and uh, it was at a time when money was relatively easy to get um, compared to, to how it had been, and um, we got a couple proposals from some banks and um, put together a deal that it was um, as much leverage as I would ever want to have on myself um, and the company um, and sort of just rolled the dice and said, you know, if this goes well, it'll work. If it doesn't, um, you know, I I gave it a good try. And that was right when, if you look at a graph of the trajectory of craft brewing in America, uh, it was that year that we did the deal that the bottom fell out and the growth weight growth rate had been slowing, but it essentially went down, I think, to 1% growth across the industry the next year. Wow. In 99? Uh, in, yeah, 98, uh, I think 98, 99. Why? What explains that? I mean, we're, we're sort of there today again, and who knows how we'll, we'll come out of our current situation, what the what the industry will, will look like. But, you know, there was starting to be a saturation of, of craft players, but the, the, the imports really probably sort of reasserted their place in the market. And so craft had been somewhat the darlings um, during the late 80s and mid 90s. Um, but then I think the, the imported beers started to realize that they, um, you know, had a place in the market and, and pushed. And um, I guess the craft industry also lost a little bit of credibility. Some of the, the bigger players back then were contract brewing, meaning they weren't brewing their own beer. They were going to one of the big brewers and having their beer made. And there was sort of an expose um, from some of the big brewers saying, you know, here's who's really brewing your special craft beer. It's being brewed at a, you know, at a Stroh's brewery or or whatever. So there was uh, some negative uh, industry PR that that also probably um, hurt the industry a bit. So you you're super leveraged and then beer sales kind of kind of uh kind of fall yeah, we fall actually flat. um came out of that in a pretty good place compared to a lot of our peers and and the reason was you know as we were brewing 363 days that year we were starting to ration and not ship to all of our markets and not ship all of our brands and we uh, had some pent-up demand so when we came out of that, I, I did do a big expansion right during that period of buying uh, Paul out, which also added 
stress and debt to the picture, um, but we pretty much doubled capacity that year, uh, 97. And we were able to sort of immediately um, go into some of that pent-up demand. So um, we grew, I think, double digits uh, when the rest of the industry was flat. Wow. So we know what happened, right? Because today, Sierra Nevada is the number three craft brewery after uh, Sam, uh, Boston Lager, uh, Boston Beer Company that makes Sam Adams and Yanling, um, based in Pennsylvania. Yeah. When you can, when you think about, I mean, the the just the incredible journey that you know you took, right? And the unlikely, I mean, I, maybe not unlikely because clearly you were motivated and you, you you were learning about different things, chemistry and machining and uh, brewing. You were learning these things all, all you know in a very deliberate way. You were talking to people. You were finding mentors. You were going to visit you know, other breweries and, and reading technical journals. Um, yep. But still, to me, I, I, I don't know. I, if I met you in 1980 when you were 25 working on Sierra Nevada, I, I don't know. I would have thought, oh, no, I don't know about this guy. I don't know if I would, <laughs> I don't know if I would uh, give him, a, I don't know if I'd part with my money for um, to invest in his company. Um, but you, you built um, the third largest craft brewery in the United States, a company which has an enormous valuation and, um, I mean, do you? I don't know. Do you think that this happened because of all those things I mentioned, because of your work ethic and your commitment to to the craft, or do you think a lot of it just had to do with luck? Um, the, the hard work part, I think, um, was a, a good component. Of it. I mean, when I opened, I mentioned I think there were six of us, and the five other craft brewers that opened in that same era have all failed today I'm the last man standing so um, we all sort of had an equal shot at it I guess. Yeah, timing I think we were you know, at the right time in uh, a sort of American culture when people were looking for better, unique different, distinctive You know, there were coffee roasters popping up and bakeries and you know, the restaurant scene was starting to, to grow and but it, you know, the the work part of it, um, it's it's been uh, a lot, and you know, it was a lot for uh, me, but a lot for my family. I mean, we, my kids grew up in the brewing industry. I have two children still uh, active uh, in the brewing industry. My son's out in North Carolina, and my daughter Sarah's here in, in Chico. So it's been a family business, but. Um, it's not an easy business, and even though a lot of people think being a brewer is romantic, um, you know, it's been hard and it's going to stay hard. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we're still around because we we're passionate about beer and passionate about having a great company. That's Ken Grossman, founder of Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. The ongoing pandemic won't be the first crisis that's impacted the company and the community. At the end of 2018, the campfire destroyed the town of Paradise, California, which is the next town over from Chico, and about 60 employees of Sierra Nevada lost their homes. Ken responded with a relief fund, and Sierra Nevada brewed a special beer called the Resilience IPA. All proceeds from that beer were donated to the long-term relief effort. And thanks so much for listening to the show this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, if you've got a business that's working on ways to tackle the global economic and health crisis, please let us know. We may feature it on our How You Built That segment. Go to build.npr.org to tell us your story. You can also write us at hibt at npr.org. And if you want to send a tweet, it's at How I Built This or at Guy Raz. Our show this week was produced by Neva Grant and Rachel Faulkner with original music composed by Ramtina Rablui. Thanks also to Candace Lim, Julia Carney, Casey Herman, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Rainy Toll. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This. This is NPR. In 1999, the music industry began cranking out Latin music meant to cross over. How do we make it Latin without being too Latin? Some of the inspiration came from strange places. Oh, 
I was channeling Morrison. We unpack Pop's Latin explosion. Listen now to It's Been a Minute from NPR.